Welcome to the Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week in our program, we'll look at the crisis on our southern border. They're coming because they think they've been invited. We'll look at H.R. 1, a piece of legislation that would fundamentally transform our elections. What this act would do would move the management of elections away from states and, in fact, move it into Washington. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell gives a warning on what it would mean if the Democrats eliminated the filibuster rule. Nobody can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched earth Senate would look like. And Ryan Anderson, the author who had his book suddenly disappear on Amazon, explains why it matters. Who's going to write a book like this in the future if they're afraid that they won't have access to the marketplace? We have all this and more. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Don Crow, coming to you from my home station of WAVA in Washington, D.C. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at WAVA.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. And take a moment to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with what is happening at our southern border. Joe Biden, when he was campaigning for president, made no bones about it. He was against President Trump's strong stance on the border. He was against the wall. And if he was elected, he made it clear that things would be different. Well, now he's president. And our neighbors to the south were listening. In fact, they're showing up in droves. Kevin McCullough turned to Sean Spicer, President Trump's first press secretary, from AM570, the mission, in New York City. The last couple of days... We've seen the issue at the border continue to explode in how bad it is. In fact, it's so bad that Democrats are now leaking pictures and content from the border when, you know, it's probably not advantageous within their party to do so. And then, of course, Kamala Harris was asked this question. um, Hey, are you going to go to the border sometime soon? And this was her literal response. Um, Not today. (laughs) Cackling Kamala, Sean Spicer, what is going on uh, as it pertains to the immigration issue and kind of the administration's unwillingness to acknowledge or to see it? You know, I think that a lot of times in the case of Vice President Harris, um, people laugh to deflect, right? So it's like, oh, that was funny, and you try to move on. In this case, I think it it was really insensitive. And I don't think it matters which side you're on, right? So if you are a... Uh, a conservative, as I am, as you are, I think that you look at that and go, wow, like this is a crisis on our border and you need to take it seriously. I think if you're a liberal, you look at what she did and said, oh, my God, there are people and we should be letting them in. And oh, my goodness. And you're not taking this seriously. I think she probably did damage on both ends of the political spectrum through that comment. So that's that's the first thing I'd say. The second broader point that I'd make is this is this is a problem that they created. And this is not a bunch of conservative talking points. When ABC's Martha Raddatz went down and talked to these folks and she asked them point blank, would you have come when Trump was president? They said no. Well, are you coming because of Biden? Yes. You can't get any clearer than that, Kevin. And I look at this and I'm saying to myself, like, I am of the view that they want this problem. Right. I think that if you look at what's going on and follow me for a second here, the Democratic base has always been minorities and like 
working men and women, the union types. Well, Donald Trump moved a lot of those folks from the Republican column, the working men and women, and frankly, picked up a lot of minorities, uh, got the largest share of the non-white votes since 1960. So they need to find a new place for votes and for future votes. And I think that they are intentionally creating a plan to get people to come flooding in through our border because they use them, they view them as future voters. That's it. There's no other reason because these, these folks aren't even following, aren't applying for asylum. This is not like they're all, uh, you know, a pre- they're coming because they think they've been invited. How is this? Is the real story being told? Are you talking to people that are in the hinterland? And is it is it penetrating? Do do everyday Americans care about the crisis that is being created? I mean, nearly 20,000 kids in literal cages now, Sean. It's not some uh, play on words. They're in the chain leak, uh, you know, boxes. Absolutely. And I think the problem is there's only so long that you can escape the reality. Right. So to your question, I think if the press left to their own devices, they would buy into this strategy of, you know, you can't see it. It's not happening. Don't look over here. But the problem is, is that there's enough people you saw, you know, Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar from Texas leak out the the pictures. And at some point, that's the problem is the press can't ignore it now. And that's where we've got is that Cuellar let these photos out. The DHS says, oh, my gosh, we got to actually then back it up. and this is the problem, is that they, the press, I think, left to their own devices would have allowed this to occur, yeah. would have allowed. But once, you know, the, the technology being what it is today and people traveling and et cetera, et cetera, makes it a lot harder. You can't cover it up the way you used to. Um, but I, 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 I mean, I, it's embarrassing overall how this press corps has treated Biden, it's it's literally like the, an extension of the White House press office. The amount of excuses and, and cover up and explaining they do. Um, but in this particular case, it's amazing um, that that they have been able to kind of like keep their head down for a while. And suddenly, it was almost like this Sunday a flip, a switch flipped, where they were like, "Oh gosh, we this is too big now. We can't ignore it." Kind of, it kind of did feel like that. Let me ask you about Jen Psaki because, um, and I don't know if you know her or have spent any time with her. She seems to me to be someone who's kind of in way over her head. That I could be totally off in that imperson in, in that impression. But one of the things that I that I have noted in recent weeks is that you know she got a lot of pushback for circle back, et cetera, et cetera. But I am almost of the opinion, uh, and I think based on a couple of things that Kelly McEnany has said, that she may not be fully working with uh, uh, a toolbox that, sh- that that gives her all of the options that a normal press secretary would have, meaning that uh, it's one thing to say, well, maybe the administration doesn't want to have their positions on certain things said, so they just tell her we don't have an answer on that. It's another thing to say, that that the the administration doesn't really uh, know what they think about certain things, or maybe their position is changing from day to day on certain uh, issues. Which do you think it is? Is she is she totally the one that's kind of making the the the, the press office look kind of silly, or is it because she's working with kind of a defunctive a defective product uh, that that she has to go out and tell the message for every day? Uh, I mean, it's a fantastic question. Um... The, the only thing that I can suggest is I think based on what I saw of Secretary Mayorkas, the DHS secretary out there this weekend, I don't think that they have an overall strategy. And you can't – if you're the press secretary, you can only play the cards that you've been handed. Right. Um, I just don't think that she's got a lot of cards right now, and it's not her fault. Um, they don't have a strategy. Um, and, then, and the thing is, this goes back to what I said a moment ago, Kevin. 
I don't think that, you know, everybody keeps saying, what are you doing at the border? As if the predicate is that you're trying to stop it. I don't think that that's the case. I think that they are trying to claim that they care, that they are, um, you know, for lack of a better word, they want to look like they've done, that they're doing due diligence. But as I said, these guys know what they're doing. They're trying to build a future base of, of voters. And so they have to fake it by looking as though they are concerned about the border, doing their thing. But they're putting these people up in hotels. They're bringing them through. They're placing them in families. They're giving them all the right signs. They know what they're doing. It didn't take long for the nation to recognize that the talk of unity and compromise that we heard from candidate Biden is quite different from what we're actually getting. The latest round of COVID aid legislation was passed without a single Republican vote. And the next push, the For the People Act, is a piece of legislation that would impact elections for generations to come. I turn to an old friend, Ken Blackwell, former Secretary of State in Ohio. You've been in the belly of the beast, both at the state level, even the local city level, then state, now federal government. Uh, So you see the machinations that work and what they do to the American people and our freedoms. So... Talk to us more about this latest effort to disenfranchise people with the, of course, uh, seemingly innocuous For the People Act, H.R. 1. What's it all about? Well, For the People Act wouldn't meet uh, even a basic low-level standard of truth in advertising. Mm. This is better labeled the Corrupt Politician Act. Uh, It is a monumental paragraph that would transformationally change our country. For 245 years, we've been under the belief that government that governs best is that government that's closest to the people from the standpoint of transparency, from the standpoint of accountability. Uh, And what this act would do would move the management and control of elections away from precincts, counties, states, and in fact, move it into Washington. Uh, it is a, 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 a paragraph. Uh, they would uh, do away with voter ID. Uh, you know, at, at a time when we have a majority in the, the, the House uh, that is for open borders, uh, they are now trying to match it up with a system that would create voters without borders uh, and, and, and totally destroy voter confidence in, in the results. And so this is a monumental uh, fight to save the integrity of our elections and to strengthen uh, the verification practices and policies at the, at the county and precinct level, and also to secure the chain of custody so that we close the door on those who wanted, would want to do evil or mischief or fraud. Uh, so that's what we're, we're, we're up against right now. We must understand what, what's, what's in place. What we're saying is that, yes, we must make it reasonably easy to vote, but we should make it hard to cheat. That's so important because we don't want anybody who legally cast a ballot to have their ballot negated by one that has been posted by somebody committing fraud. Don, this country is 
is almost perfectly balanced. Uh, Republicans control, you know, a few more state legislative chambers than Democrats. Uh, we control one more governorship uh, than, than, than Democrats. Uh, there's only a five-seat difference in the House of Representatives at, in, in Washington, uh, and it's a 50-50 tie. What this bill would do would move us towards a, a one-party system at a, at a time when over half of the country uh, basically doesn't want to move in the direction that Pelosi and Schumer uh, and their crowd want to move us in. We are opposed to a, a march towards socialism uh, and one-party control. Coming up, a warning from Senator Mitch McConnell. Nobody serving in this chamber can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched earth Senate would look like. The Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As we consider a post-COVID world, the call goes forth to a new generation of leaders in politics and policy. I'm Pete Peterson, Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. And for over two decades, we've prepared students to apply America's founding principles to today's policy debates. Are you considering graduate school? Find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. H.R. 1, the legislation that we discussed just before the break, does not have sufficient votes to make it past the current filibuster rule in the Senate. And the COVID aid bill that just recently passed only made it through under Senate rules for spending terms called budget reconciliation. So how will the Democrats push through the For the People Act? And how will they push through the misnamed Equality Act? that we've talked about on the program in recent weeks by eliminating the filibuster rule. It would be a radical step that would fundamentally transform our democracy. Mitch McConnell, now minority leader, gave a warning on the Senate floor. So let me say this very clearly for all 99 of my colleagues. Nobody serving in this chamber can even begin, can even begin to imagine what a completely scorched earth Senate would look like. None of us have served one minute in a Senate that was completely drained of comedy and consent. This is an institution that requires unanimous consent to turn the lights on before noon, to proceed with a garden variety floor speech, to dispense with the reading of lengthy legislative text, to schedule committee business, to move even non-controversial nominees at anything besides a snail's face. So Mr. President, I want our colleagues to imagine a world where every single task, every one of them, requires a physical quorum, which by the way, the vice president does not count in determining a quorum. Everything that Democrat Senates did to Presidents Bush and Trump, everything the Republican Senate did to President Obama, would be child's play compared to the disaster that Democrats would create for their own priorities if, if they break the Senate. 
So this is not a trade-off between trampling etiquette, but then getting to quickly transform the country. That's a false choice. Even the most basic aspects of our colleagues' agenda, the most mundane task of the Biden presidency, would actually be harder. Harder, not easier. We're Democrats in a post-nuclear Senate that is 50-50, dead even. If the Democrats break the rules to kill Rule 22 on a 50-50 basis, then we will use every other rule to make tens of millions of Americans' voices heard. Perhaps the majority would come after the other rules next. Perhaps Rule 22 would just be the first domino of many. Until the Senate ceased to be distinct from the House in any respect, this chaos would not open up an express lane to liberal change. It would not open up an express lane for the Biden presidency to speed into the history books. The Senate would be more like a hundred-car pileup. Nothing moving. There's no question about it. The Biden-Harris team, strengthened by the Democrat majorities in both chambers, have started out governing from the hard left. But the signal from the executive branch has done something notable to the private sector that we should all be paying attention to. Big tech has made an abrupt shift as well, quieting the voices of key conservatives. Ryan Anderson, author of When Harry Became Sally, is Exhibit A. He joined Eric Metaxas. I just want to say we are living in strange times because so many people shop at Amazon. And so tell us, what has this been like for you? This is a very serious book. This is not some, you know, flippant uh, rant. This is, uh, and they carry Mein Kampf, do they not? That's correct. So, I mean, like, the book came out three years ago. Um, you know, it's rigorously argued, you know, tons of footnotes, lots of studies are cited. It's endorsed by a who's who of medical experts, scientific experts, legal philosophy experts. And they sold it for over three years. You know, they sold it all throughout the time when Donald Trump was president and Bill Barr was attorney general and Josh Hawley was in the Senate majority. And then all of a sudden, the weekend before a big vote in the House of Representatives uh, on a bill that I'm critical of and that the book discusses critically, they erase the book, right? They just, you know, put me down the memory hole. It's the timing is suspicious. Uh, there was no explanation offered. They didn't reach out to us ahead of time in violation of their own policy for this. And all they have said since then is they've misdescribed what the book says and they've used that as the justification uh, for getting rid of it. Amazon controls something like 80 to, I think it's 70 to 80% of new book sales in America, 80% of ebook sales in America. They're the largest uh, kind of um, online retailer in the world. And so if you get canceled from Amazon, that's going to harm you. It's going to harm uh, readers, but more importantly, future authors. Who's going to write a book like this in the future if they're afraid that they won't have access to the marketplace? Because Amazon is the marketplace, unfortunately. This is stunning. I mean, you just said a couple of things that, that I hadn't um, thought of that are really important, that when they when someone like Amazon does this, uh, they have such a powerful voice in the culture. By, by doing something like this, they are sending a chilling effect. Don't write books like this. Publishers, don't publish books like this. We will hurt you. And I always say that we've got to fight back uh, whatever we can do. This is scandalous that we have 
one giant entity, uh, Amazon, that is making these kinds of decisions about who they want to cancel. And they have so much money that they don't care if they lose some money from not selling your book. They don't care. They can do what they want. They're really monsters at this point. And of course, just to get into the legal aspects of it, Ryan, where, where it becomes tricky is that we have ceded tremendous power uh, to tech giants, uh, to, to uh, online giants like Amazon. We've given them power and they're private corporations. So it's interesting to think, how can the government get involved? It seems to me that if the government can get involved in telling people that they have to sell hamburgers to anyone who comes in your store, whatever race they are, you know, because it's in the public interest, it seems to me this is something like that, where the government ha has to somehow get involved. Yeah, I mean, you could think about this. All of our um, liberties have limits. And so I believe in free markets. I believe in property rights. But I'm not a free market absolutist. I'm not a property rights absolutist. There, there are limits to everything. And so we can think about this. There's anti-discrimination limits. There are antitrust and monopoly limits. There are common carriers and public utility limits. What we're seeing is kind of the intersection of those three areas, right? Amazon's almost like a monopoly. Perhaps it is for antitrust purposes. It seems that they're discriminating against people based upon their political views, their religious views. And they're kind of like something like a common carrier, right? Imagine if your electric company or the phone company said, you know, we won't service your, your home or your cell phone plan if you're a conservative, right? Some banks are doing that to conservatives. So I think um, free marketers like me you know, we shouldn't fall into the trap of saying, oh, it's a private business, they can do whatever they want, right? That's not true. It's never been true in the US. And we need to think when there's an ideological um, uh, kind of uh, a universality of a certain ideology amongst all of the elites who own the big tech companies, we need to figure out what's the right uh, response. Coming up. Right, if you have the high school girl who doesn't feel comfortable as a girl, the solution isn't testosterone and a double mastectomy, right? The solution is helping her feel comfortable with the reality of who she is as a girl, as a developing woman. We continue the conversation with Ryan Anderson when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Don Crow. There are a number of conservatives who have, over the years, argued against any sort of government intervention in big tech. Yes, we have great reason to be skeptical of the government, but we don't have to wonder anymore whether the big tech companies are acting in good faith. Let's return to more of the conversation of Eric Metaxas with Ryan Anderson, now head of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. What do you think is going on? Do we think that we don't have leadership and courage in Congress or the Senate? Because it doesn't really get much bigger than this. Well, I wouldn't say necessarily it's a lack of courage. I mean, we did see four senators uh, sent a letter to Jeff Bezos demanding answers on this. Uh, eight members of the House of Representatives from the Republican Study Committee um, sent a letter to Jeff Bezos, the Attorney General of Indiana, sent a letter to Bezos, you know, all demanding um, answers in various respects. I think the bigger problem is that we haven't updated our thinking from the 1980s, 
right? That many uh, conservative thinkers are still stuck in uh, the Reagan years where the only threat to our liberty was big government. And we haven't realized that big tech is also a threat. This is, a, yeah, this, that. Is, this is a real bugbear for me. I get enraged at people who are so myopic. They think the free market will cure everything. They have no understanding of liberty uh, if they make an idol of the free market. And I'm a free marketer. Uh, there's a lot going on here, Ryan. First of all, uh, let's uh, talk about the one of the important issues here. The reason that Amazon has made this decision is because they have certain views on the transgender debate and they don't like what you have to say, even though everything you have to say is simply true. You have simply written a book where you have done the research and you put it out there so people can make healthy decisions. They don't like that. I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is that you know Amazon is trying to use its outsized market dominance to put its thumb on the scale uh, on an important cultural debate, an important philosophical debate, an important medical debate, and an important political debate. And they have certain views on this, and they're going to use their market power to try to skew that debate. And my fear is that it's going to have really bad consequences, and, and you know, not just for me personally, but consequences for people who who need to know the truth about this. You know, parents who have a child struggling with gender dysphoria. What's in the best interest of that child? Puberty blocking drugs and cross-sex hormones or good counseling, right? Amazon's skewing these discussions in a way that I fear is gonna have negative consequences for the entire culture. Well, I, I keep saying uh, that we've all got to do something about this. There's a million things that need to be done, but I think people have to migrate away from places like Amazon because this will happen more and more and more and more. And if we don't diversify so that you can find products at other places, uh, we're all gonna lose our freedoms. I mean, the reason this is so um, scandalous to me is that in a few years, a few people have made some decisions and tried to force these decisions on everyone. I can't think of anything more horrifying, more sick, that we have not properly looked at this stuff. Your book obviously is a huge effort toward that end. Let's actually look at this in a cold-blooded scientific way. Is this good? Is this bad? What are the upsides to this? What are the uh, downsides to this? And I'm amazed because people have children going through this. The messages they're getting are mixed, are confused, are in many cases fundamentally wrong and harmful. And you were doing your duty as an American citizen to get this information out there. This is what you do. And they're saying, we're not interested in your objective information. We don't like it. It's a stunning thing. I mean, what, what do you say in the book, for example, that maybe folks listening right now wouldn't know about this issue? You know, the, 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 the best analogy um, that I think will be helpful for, for our viewers and listeners is to think about something like um, anorexia, right? This is a body image problem, an eating problem, depending on who the person is. And sometimes it's focused more on food, sometimes it's focused more on the body, uh, body image. But no one thinks that the solution is liposuction, right? Because everyone agrees there's nothing wrong. A high school girl who's struggling with anorexia, the problem is not with her body. The problem's with her thoughts, with her feelings. And so you direct the, the therapy, you direct the um, intervention at the thoughts and the feelings, you help her to feel comfortable in her own body. That's what Dr. McHugh at Johns Hopkins um, suggests is a good framework for thinking about gender dysphoria, right? If you have the high school girl who doesn't feel comfortable as a girl, 
the solution isn't testosterone and a double mastectomy, right? The solution is helping her feel comfortable with the reality of who she is as a girl, as a developing woman. And the problem could be the, the culture. It could be the school that she's in. It could be, you know, other girls. It could be boys. I mean, who knows what it is that's making her feel this discomfort, but that's the problem, right? The underlying cause is the problem. The problem is not with her body. And so the solution is not with hormones and surgery. Coming up. Never underestimate the ability of people to look reality in the face and deny it. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment, stay with us. As we consider a post-COVID world, the call goes forth to a new generation of leaders in politics and policy. I'm Pete Peterson, Dean of Pepperdine's Graduate School of Public Policy. And for over two decades, we've prepared students to apply America's founding principles to today's policy debates. Are you considering graduate school? Find out more at pepperdine.edu spp. That's pepperdine.edu spp. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. It's no secret more and more young couples are choosing to live together before they get married. It may not be particularly strange to see that in the culture at large, but we're also seeing it among professed Christian believers, and it's a challenge for Christian ministers. David Ayers of Grove City College wrote about it for Christianity Today in a piece titled The Cohabitation Dilemma Comes for America's Pastors. He was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word FM in Pittsburgh. Now, this is a this is a difficulty that every Christian believer is having, because if you uh, subscribe to a biblical ethic, there is a sexual ethic in it. And um, for people who are outside the church, they can't understand that. And that's that's fine because they don't, you know, as Paul says, we don't have to worry about judging people who are outside the church. But for people who are inside the church, I think that's where my greatest sadness is that people who have grown up in the church, who, you know, recognize the authority of the Bible or, have, you know, there's even in people who are churched as far as background goes, there's still like a disassociation when it comes to a sex ethic. Well, part of the problem is, you know, looking at the Bible and, and using our culture as a kind of a barometer in terms of what we kind of would want to view as trivial sins, right? Well, it's mm -hmm. it's not a big sin. It's kind of like a white lie, right? It's not that big of a deal. And then I think part of it is, and, and I, I've actually got this from at least one of the pastors I interviewed, and I get this from other people. Hey, look, you know, we're dealing with transgenderism. We're dealing with same-sex marriage. Uh, we're, we're dealing with trying to figure out what the ramifications of the Equality Act are going to be on our churches. You know, why are you worried about this stuff? Why are you worried about cohabitation? Why are you worried about sex outside of wedlock? It's just not a big deal. And that, that's oftentimes thought, but, you know, at least I'm not doing something really bad. But the problem is, of course, is that the, the Word of God, while certainly giving us a sense of the seriousness of different sins, they're not all just the same. We serve a holy God, and teachings about sexual purity are very central. And in fact, were one of the ways that in the early Roman period, the Romans distinguished the Christians and the Jews from everybody else because their standards were so high in this area. On top of that, of course, it looks like hypocrisy for, for people who are struggling with some of these other issues because to them it means, well, you guys don't take heterosexual sin seriously. You know, you're not worried about, mm -hmm. about sure. 
fornication. What you're worried right. about is, you know, th- things that give you the ooh factor. So, in fact, you know, we, we think, well, this isn't a big deal. Look at th- these other things are the real problems. But the people who are struggling with those real problems, many of whom are in the faith with us, struggling alongside us, are wondering why we turned a blind eye to an elder's yep. son living with his girlfriend out of wedlock, but we're going to come down on him for having a boyfriend and maybe in some ways living with more integrity than the yeah. heterosexual couple. And I, I feel for that. I think that yeah, that's a I very valid concern. Now, David, of course, you know this, and I think probably most people who uh, choose to live together know this. Uh, late last month, this is from um, The Atlantic, the Journal of Marriage and Family published a new study with a somewhat foreboding finding. Couples who lived together before marriage had a lower divorce rate in their first year of marriage but had a higher divorce rate after five and 10 years. I mean, people have talked about this for a long time, right? They have. I mean, just straight up, people that live together first are more likely to get divorced. The big argument as to whether or not that's just a selection effect. You know, people that live together are the type of people that would be more likely to get divorced anyway. One of the reasons why their divorce rate is a little lower up front is because there's something called the early marriage letdown. And they've already gone through that because let's say they moved in three years ago, they've already kind of gone through that process. But then what happens is as their marriage enters its more mature phase, while the couple that really prepared properly for marriage is growing and working through that and getting through a lot of those first, you know, those trials that many people experience in their early marriage, they're they're beginning to fall apart because rather than preparing for marriage the way that they should have, they thought that cohabitation was going to basically do that for them. And that is one of the biggest myths out there uh, about cohabitation. And in my college teaching, most of my students actually still believe that. They're shocked, and a lot of them will refuse to believe that cohabitation does not work as a practice marriage, that, in fact, the, the dissolution rate of cohabitation is extraordinarily high. Let's talk about why it's hard for people to realize that ahead of time. And I'm not, so if we're, if we're taking the biblical ethic out of it. We're just talking, you know, from practical reasoning. What do you think it is that causes people to say, oh, I'm sure that's not the case, even when they're confronted with data to the contrary? Well, uh, you know, I think first of all is that I've never, and, and I'd be willing to apply this to myself as a sinner. Uh, never underestimate the ability of people to look reality in the face and deny <laughs> it if it goes against their yeah. deeply held. Beliefs. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah, right. But the other, but the other thing is, is that they're not really hearing it from many people. Most college classes on marriage and family today aren't going to deal with it at all. They're not really hearing it in high school. And if you watch television, you know, really for at least the last ten or fifteen years, the first thing people do when they get quote serious is they live together. And, and it's, it's presented as the most natural, normal sure. thing in the world. And so it's like the water they're swimming in. And so in some ways, when I'm standing up in a classroom and I'm dealing with sophomores and juniors, they're oftentimes hearing it for the first time. It's, it's one or two class periods out of a whole semester. And this is the first time they've ever heard it in their lives. And David, are you saying even at Christian universities, students coming in, is it Bible illiteracy that drives a lot of this or just total ignorance? The degree of Bible illiteracy today among people who've been raised in Christian churches and home is shocking. How many of them have never actually even read the whole Bible and really thought it through? Um, that, that's, that's a huge issue of itself. But then we also have the problem that we're now bringing assumptions, very relativistic, very identity-centered, uh, 
you know, I get to construct my own reality. You know, um, reality has to conform to my expectations and desires of it. And it's in the air that we breathe. You know, transgenderism is, is just one kind of symptom of, of something that's been with us for a long time that we kind of think that reality bends to our desires, to our mm-hmm. dictates. Yeah. And so w- they look at Scripture that way. And so what many of the pastors I've talked to and what I've confronted myself will say is that they'll say, yes, the Bible says that's wrong, but that's why it's not wrong in my case. And Mark Regnerus um, and others have documented interviews with evangelical and Catholic teenagers where they, they talk about sex, for example, that way, yeah, the Bible teaches, but this is why it's okay for me. And it's there's so they we have these mechanisms to neutralize reality and to neutralize biblical teaching that are very potent. And I don't think most pastors and youth workers have yet really figured out how to cope with those things. Coming up, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem goes wobbly. It looks like she chickened out. It looks like she is kowtowing to the NCAA. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Don Crow. In the face of the fast advancing sexual and moral revolution, the world of women's sport has been directly impacted by transgendered athletes. A number of states have been pushing back. Arkansas has a piece of legislation protecting women's sport, and so does South Dakota, where Governor Kristi Noem had been enthusiastic about it. Here's my friend Bob Burney from WRFD The Word in Columbus, Ohio. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is one of the rising stars among conservative Republicans At least she was. The uh, South Dakota legislature passed overwhelmingly a piece of legislation that would protect women from unfair advantages given to male athletes who identify as female. Right now, uh, you don't even have to be transgender. You can just identify as female and in many states, uh, the biological, anatomical male can just say, I feel pretty and I think I want to compete against the girls. South Dakota passed the legislation and uh, Republican Governor Kristi Noem said, I am so excited to sign the legislation. Until the NCAA and the ACLU got a hold of Christy Nome and the NCAA said, um, you know, if you pass that legislation, we're probably not going to allow any NCAA competition in uh, South Dakota. It could hurt you economically. Uh, we wouldn't allow any tournaments. We might forbid South uh, Dakota college teams. We might forbid them from uh, competing against other schools. And so Christy Nome said, Oops, maybe I'm not so excited about this legislation as I thought. In South Dakota, they have a provision if the governor finds some minor differences, like grammar, sentence structure, a few words here and there that the governor doesn't like, the governor can send it back to the legislature and say, clean that stuff up, and and then I might sign it. Well, this is the provision that she used. 
She wants entire sections, in fact, almost one half of the legislation omitted so they won't offend the NCAA. So in other words, Christy Nome, and this is my personal opinion, this is editorial only, I want you to know that, but it looks like she chickened out. It looks like she is kowtowing to the NCAA and some large corporations and the ACLU because she doesn't want the state to be sued and she doesn't want to lose money. That wraps up this edition of the Christian Outlook. If you enjoyed our program, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. And never miss these and other great conversations. Start at ChristianOutlook.com. Thanks for joining us today. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Cuban and producers Charlie Richards, David Pouchon, and Michael Cook, I'm Don Crow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. But it flew away from a reach, so she ran away in a sleep.